As Paul said, we have been preaching through the book of First Thessalonians. Um, by the end of today, we'll have finished chapter 4, which means there's only one other chapter left to go before we wrap up First Thessalonians. It's been an interesting series. Some people have even asked about why the particular images, isn't that First Thessalonians is all written to Christians, preparing them in light of the fact that Jesus could return any time. And we always need to be constantly thinking about, we need to be a people who are prepared and ready, because one day at a time, we don't know, um, Jesus will return. So we'll open up in prayer because we're not here to hear what Steve's got to say, we want to hear what God's got to say, and I need his help, and we need his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we come together to study the Bible, it's not just an ancient book, it is the very word of God given to us. Lord, we thank you that it deals with everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, including some of the things that are difficult in this life. And Lord, we pray that your word might be at work in us to change us and transform us, to become more like Jesus, and that all honour and glory would be given to you. But I ask for the work of your spirit through me as I, as I speak to protect me from error, help me to speak clearly, uh, but also I ask for the work of your spirit in all of us that we might hear and respond rightly to your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Whoops, that was a bit too early. <laughs> Surprise. Um, on Tuesday, a friend of mine was driving along same road that he drives along every single day. He probably had the, the same old routine, got out of bed, breakfast, shower, get dressed, because getting dressed before you go out is always a good thing. And as he's heading along, all things going towards the normal routine of every day, there are things that are outside of our control. And as he's travelling along a road that he's travelled along every single day, doing what he does for his job every single day, a truck came the other way, loaded with vehicles, and Paul lost his life on Tuesday morning. Now, I can imagine that is a massive shock to his family. Paul would be in his young 30s, he's got a wife, three boys who will probably be hearing about the topic of what's happened to Dad for the first time in their life. It's not a conversation any of us would be that enviable of, of having with young children. It's a hard thing to deal with. But all of us, we go through life and at some point we will encounter the topic of death. Go back a bit over 20 years ago, this is a very much younger Steve in a home hardware uniform. When I was younger, this is now, that was 1995, I wasn't even a Christian at this age. I put my parents' car underneath a semi-trailer. You'll notice there's no damage to the front of the car because when you hit a semi, you actually go between the back wheels. The first thing you hit is the upright of your windscreens on the back of the track, and that's what folded the roof down like this. Had I not had long legs and had the seat back as far as it possibly went, I would be dead, and I would be dead without having known Jesus Christ as my saviour. As you can see, even the, the steering wheel is outside of the windscreen, that photo, that's how it's, much it's been folded back. 
But while it's a difficult topic, sometimes it has made things even more difficult when a supposedly helpful Christian tells another Christian, you're a Christian, you shouldn't grieve when people die. Because that's not actually a true statement. Sometimes they might come from the perspective that the Bible tells us we are to rejoice always. Or that we should be anxious about nothing. Or that we should give thanks in all circumstances. And somehow that that should imply that Christians should not grieve. But when Paul says to rejoice always, he says rejoice always in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in every circumstance. He says give thanks in every circumstance because still, even in the middle of hardship, God can and does use and bring for a good purpose. In the passage we're looking at this morning, it does not say do not grieve. It tells them in light of the fact that other Christians had died, do not grieve like the others who have no hope. And then it finishes with the words, comfort one another with these words. Now if the gospel is truly to be good news into every area of human existence, then it must provide good news and it must provide hope even into the area of death and suffering. The verses that we look at this morning are not just general teaching about death or even just general teaching about the return of Jesus Christ. What we see is Paul is addressing a specific question that has come to him from the Thessalonians. And understanding that will not only help us to interpret this passage correctly, but it will also prevent us from reaching some wrong conclusions as well. Most of what we've seen so far in 1 Thessalonians, we've seen Paul repeating stuff that he's already taught them. We've seen this language of, as you know, or as we taught you while we're among you. And what we're looking at in these verses seems to be the first and maybe even the last time that Paul teaches the Thessalonians something that he hasn't previously taught them about. In addressing in a question that's been raised to them, speaks about being in the know in the first verse, verse 13. Pointing to Jesus as the firstborn of the resurrection in 13 to 15. That we will be together with the Lord forever in 16 and 17. And the fact that we need reminding. So being in the know. Unlike everything that we've seen in the last number of weeks where Paul has repeatedly said, as you know or as we already told you while we were amongst you. It seems in Paul's absence, a question is raised amongst the Thessalonians. They are aware that that Paul had spoken, that Jesus was coming back and he would return and he would take those to himself who belonged to him. And possibly some of them might have thought it was something that's going to happen pretty soon. And by this point in time, a number of the Christians had died and they're wondering to themselves, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus comes back? Are they missing out on something? Will they miss out on going to be with Jesus? Will they miss out on seeing the other Christians who are left behind? So Paul begins by addressing saying, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve at others who have no hope. The word translated uninformed there means to mean that you do not know. We don't want you to not know about this stuff. So Paul is not correcting something that they've heard about but misunderstood. Paul is teaching them for the first time on this particular topic. And the result would be that they would not grieve in the same way, that's important, in the same way as others around them who don't have hope. Remember, it doesn't say don't grieve, but it says to grieve differently because you have a hope. Even Jesus, as he's there at Lazarus' grave, is grieving the loss, even though he knew exactly what he was going to do. It's almost to an extent where I'd say it is unloving not to grieve. Regardless of what your perspective is of the world we live in, regardless of your perspective of God, regardless of your perspective of whether or not there's an eternity, People will miss people who they've had in their midst for some period of time who are no longer around. But the Thessalonians' primary concern wasn't so much we're going to miss them or what if we don't see them again. Their primary concern was are they missing out on being with Jesus if they pass away before he returns again? And will we see them again at some point in the future? And as he begins to answer their question, he starts with the foundation of something they do know. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the foundation which he begins with, just as Jesus is risen from the dead, so also those who are united with him, those who belong to him, will experience a resurrection like his. Because he has been raised, those in Christ will be raised. Now again, this passage, Paul is primarily answering the question they're asked about what happens to those who died beforehand. So it's not a full treatment of the return of Jesus or, or a full treatment of the resurrection. But later he sort of expands a bit further on this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verses 20 to 24, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Paul says there in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning he is the first of many who will follow afterwards. And he says the timing of that is when Jesus will return, those who belong with him will be raised to be with him also. Then comes the end, where he will defeat every rule, power, in authority. So 1 Corinthians 15 confirms and clarifies what's said back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but it also rules out a potential misinterpretation of chapter 4 that we'll look at shortly. 
But one thing you're noticing common between the two is that language of sleep. It seems, might seem like a bit of a funny metaphor might it, to talk about death as sleep because you and I know they're very different things. I'd very much appreciate when I'm asleep that people don't put me into a box and put me under the ground. But there's common use of this term not only in the Bible, not only in Judaism, but also in first century culture to which they're writing, speaking of it as sleep. And it's also very helpful in the setting in which Paul is writing about now is because sleep is not the end of something. You sleep, you go to bed one night, and you wake up the next day. Unless, of course, you're a bad sleeper or you work night shift, in which case you wake into the same day. But even still, you sleep and you wake. And as Paul is using this as a metaphor of death and life beyond death, it's a good analogy to use. The idea of a resurrection and awaking from sleep isn't even exclusively a New Testament idea. That same language and that same teaching is picked up in, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Daniel says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of troubles, such as never has been since the, there was nation till that time. But that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the idea of a resurrection and a universal judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous is right back there in the Old Testament. You see it repeated again when Jesus speaks on the topic in Matthew chapter 25. He says the same thing. When he returns, there will be an eternal judgment, an eternal separation into two camps of those who belong to him and those who do not, to eternal life and to eternal punishment. But the Thessalonians, their concern was, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns? Are they missing out of something of Jesus? Are they going to miss out on being connected with the other Christians at any point in the future? And Paul goes to great extent to answer that question, starting in verse 14 that we've looked at. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So in answer to their question, will they miss out on being with Jesus? Paul has replied and answered to them, those will be with Jesus when he comes. They're not missing out on being with Jesus because they had passed away before his return. So their concern about them missing out has been relieved. But he goes on to expand in verse 15. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So it brings the full authority of Jesus says, we're not going to even experience it before they do. They will neither be disadvantaged in terms of, of entering into the presence of Jesus, nor will they be delayed in entering into the presence of Jesus. So they're concerned that the dead might miss out has been totally dismissed. In fact, they will be coming with Jesus when he returns. Now, as Paul goes on to say, and we who are alive, some people read those words and think, 
Paul was under the presumption that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. And boy, must have been, he been miffed when that didn't happen. But I don't think that's what Paul is actually saying. Like if you just go forward a few verses across into chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear as Jesus did, nobody knows the hour. Jesus is coming at a time you don't expect. So I don't think Paul's going to contradict himself within a few verses. I think Paul is just open to the idea is because the time is unknown, it could happen in his lifetime. And when you read over in chapter 5, down in verse 10, Paul makes it very clear. Whether we are alive or asleep, we will live with him. Like he makes it very clear. He may be alive, but he may too be dead come the time when Jesus returns. As moves on to verses 16 and 17, Paul expands why those who have died in Christ will neither miss out on the presence of Christ, but also too, why they will not miss out on spending eternity not only with Jesus, but also with the others who belong to Christ. Which his summary says, we will be together with the Lord. As he begins with the word for, he explains and expands a sequence of events. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And as you read those verses, they may be familiar verses. And you might think, I know these verses right here. That is the rapture. You're correct. That is the rapture. That is Jesus taking his people. But, given the rise of particularly important books and authors, what you mean by that term might be very different than what Paul had in mind. The sequence itself is pretty straightforward and nobody debates or argues about the sequence. Makes it very clear, the Lord will come with a commanding shout, the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet sound, that the dead Christians will rise first and they will come with him as we saw back in verse 14. The Christians who are alive at the time will meet up together with him in the clouds and they shall be forever with the Lord. But there are some who when they look at these verses think this only speaks about Christians. This must mean some sort of a secret rapture, just of Christians being taken out of the world, like you might read in your Left Behind books or the even worse movies that were made out of those books. Sometimes called a pre-tribulation rapture. The idea that somehow Jesus secretly takes Christians out of the world before seven years of tribulation before actually coming. But there's some serious problems with that view. There's some directly serious problems with the view, but there's also some serious problems in the fact that it ignores the context which Paul is writing. To give you just some of the concerns that I have with that view, here are some of them. One is, in the next chapter, Paul goes on to speak about regarding the times and the seasons, they have already been taught, they know these things. Yet this idea that Jesus would remove Christians out of the world before another coming seven years later, 
No Christian held that view until 200 years ago. Not only that, but it requires that Jesus actually has two returns, a secret one and a public one, which I don't see the Bible speaking about anywhere. In fact, if this was to be a secret coming, then the language kind of suggests something you wouldn't do when you're trying to be secret or private. It says he comes with the shouting command, with an arch, voice of an archangel and a trumpet. Now, can I put it to you? If you want to sneak up on someone, shouting commands and using a trumpet's not a good technique. It doesn't work real good. The language speaks about something very public, noticeable. And it goes against Jesus' own teaching when he speaks about the nature of his return. Where he very clearly links together his return with a judgment of those who are in Christ and those who are not. But beyond that, there's a big serious question about the context. There's a good reason why Paul only speaks about Christians in what he's talking about here. And that is because he's answering a question. He's answering a question as, what happens to those who are Christians who die before his return? That's why Paul only speaks specifically about what happens to Christians when he returns. We saw in Daniel 12 too, Jesus says the same in Matthew 25, that when he returns... There will be a judgment and eternal separation between those who belong to God and those who do not. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end. Now this isn't something that Paul speaks about, what I'm about to say here, but our natural curiosity is going to say, well, what happens to Christians when they die? What happens in between? Well, as far as the New Testament teaching goes, it seems that to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And the way it speaks of it seems to be not a soul sleep, as some would say, but a conscious existence in the presence of Jesus. And at Jesus' return, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, at the twinkling of an eye, we all will be changed to receive a resurrection body just like Jesus. The righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal punishment, according to Jesus in Matthew 25, 46. But they're not the, the details the Thessalonians are curious about. They just wanted to know, what about those in Christ? Will they miss out when he returns if they've died beforehand? Will we see one another again? Both of which Paul has fully satisfied those answers. And because there is a great hope for those who are in Christ, whether they've died in Christ already or whether they are alive in Christ... It's a hope we need to remind ourselves of regularly. Because in Christ, there is an answer to the deepest concerns that we have in this life, including our concerns and our fears with regards to death. So Paul says to them, encourage one another with these words. When thinking about how do we deal with Christians when they die, encourage ourselves with the reminder that whether they've died before his return or they come, Jesus comes while they're alive, they will be with Christ. We will all be together, those who belong to Christ, for all eternity. 
One thing I've discovered in life is even the most difficult trials that we have, usually we actually know the answer to those trials. Usually we know what the Bible says about how we should respond to them. But it doesn't mean that we always do it. Sometimes the very answer that we need to hear is an answer we know, but we just don't follow in it. And it takes a renewing of our mind to even start to switch our mind to start thinking the thoughts of God in the way in which God intended us to. Even if we've responded rightly to something once, there's no guarantee that we'll do it again. So Paul urges the Thessalonians, keep encouraging each other with this. Because your tendency is to go back and worry about it. To grieve like those around you who don't have hope. Remind each other daily of the hope which you have, that you will be with Christ forever. So what? In the passing of nearly 2,000 years, not much has changed, has it? I think odds are high that as 2018 has gone by, everyone in this room most likely knows someone who has passed away. If they were close to you, it would be a time of really deep grief, even as a Christian. Matter of fact, as a Christian who we are called to excel and abound in love, possibly you might have experienced grief even more than others who are around us. But what makes us different as a Christian is when another Christian dies, while we may grieve, there is also hope in the middle of that grief. I remember when I first entered into pastoral ministry back in 2010. A thing that scared me the most was not standing, teaching the word of God in front of people. It was funerals. I realised that weddings was a serious matter too, but my experience is if you make a mistake in a wedding, you can have a bit of a giggle about it. I've called the bride he, I've probably made all sorts of mistakes, the things that have come out that shouldn't have come out, and we have a giggle about it. But I was always worried that funeral's not the time to make that sort of a mistake. And there was one request that I had, and I prayed this prayer regularly. God, don't let my first ever funeral be a tragic death of an unbeliever. Just ease me into it with some, some good, long-lived, faithful Christians that we can rejoice. And so far, that has been my only experience. But I'm sure, so staying in pastoral ministry, that will change over time. But in that setting, a funeral is a time to lay out the hope that is there in the gospel. That doesn't mean that you lay out the hope before everyone and then make a side comment about the person who is there who may not have entered into that hope. You don't, that would be very inappropriate. But to lay out that hope and hold out that hope before those who are living in front of you is something that would be expected. That doesn't mean it doesn't weigh heavily on you to be in that experience. To know that there is someone who was created in the image of God, designed to be in a relationship with God, loved by many people sitting there on that morning, gathered there to to say their farewells and who are grieving. But in the middle of that grieving is a message of hope. A message of hope that the grave has been conquered, that Jesus Christ 
has died our death on our behalf that we may have life eternal forevermore with him. And a passage like this brings the two implications. The first is the obvious one. When a fellow Christian passes, that we are not to grieve like the rest of the world who don't have hope. Yes, we are to grieve. We should. We love the person. We miss them. But in the middle of that grieving, there is a hope. There is a hope that that person is in the very presence of Jesus, enjoying all of the blessings that they had hoped for in this life. And that one day too, that we will be joined with them, that we will be forever with them and in the presence of Jesus. But the second implication is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ and you have God's message of hope in a dying world. If you've ever been in a situation where you've got a friend who's got a really serious illness and a really serious diagnosis in terms of lifetime, that sort of thing, you know how helpless that can feel because you're sitting there beside them, you might want to comfort them, you might be praying for them. But in terms of dealing with their sickness, you know you can't do anything. You haven't got the skills, you haven't got the abilities, you haven't got the knowledge to even begin to work on that illness. But it's not the same when we consider about one another's eternal condition. When we're burdened by the eternal souls or the spiritual state of those who are around us, there is comfort that we actually have the cure to that. And that it's not coming down to our skills. Because in the other example, you could be a doctor but not very good at doing the skills. Because both the message that brings hope and both the tra- transformation that leads into that hope of eternity with Jesus is God's message and God's work in that person. Not your technique, not your strategy, not your coercion. God's message, God does the changing. The almighty God who could just create the whole world, everything we see around us, just by speaking is the God who is making our appeal, according to 2 Corinthians, who makes his appeal through us. Isn't that confident building? Know that we don't fear about our ability, our technique. God sends us on his mission and he says, you know, my spirit's going to be with you. I've got all authority and power. I'm going to make my appeal through you. I often wonder about the world in which we live in. If Just imagine if 20%, let's go with 20%, considered their neighbourhoods or their workplaces their mission field and held out that gospel of hope in those arenas. What a different world we'd live in. How many less funerals there would be where there would be hope in the middle of that grief? Not just a hope for today, but a hope for all eternity. A hope that rescues from the hopelessness of broken and corrupt humanity. There's a prayer I think I might have shared at our last ministry coordination team meeting. Um, Alvin Reed says this is something he prays every day and I would encourage you. If you are concerned about the spiritual well-being 
of the world in which we live in to pray this prayer. It's not going to take you long. God, give me opportunities today. Give me the wisdom to see and recognise those opportunities and give me the boldness to take them. Because if we recognise that God is the one who is at work changing and saving people, then he's the one we pray to, we depend upon in prayer. God, if you're the one who does the saving, God, you give me the opportunity. Let me see that opportunity and give me the boldness to take it. Because if you've created the opportunity, if I faithfully share what you've given to me, then you will do your work. So I encourage you to add that to your daily prayer life as we think about those who live around us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, death can be such a, a difficult topic. And I think the fear of it for so many is the, particularly those who don't know, it's the unknown of what if there is something beyond death. As the one who created life, you have made it very clear that there is life beyond death for everybody. There is either an eternity enjoying the presence of Jesus and all of his blessings, or there is an eternity of punishment. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the message of hope into a corrupt and dying world. We thank you that Jesus Christ has borne our death on our behalf. And that as we stand before you on that last day, our confidence won't be a list of achievements we've done, particular ministries we've been involved in. Our confidence will be the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we thank you that you loved and cared enough for rebellious sinners like us that you would send Jesus for us. In his name we ask. Amen. Next week we're going to look